Greetings, everybody. I'm Jeremiah. That's him. She's Vanya. That's me. Welcome to another episode of the Beard and Curls podcast, where we talk about dating, relationships, marriage, mental health, and so much more. So what are we talking about today, love? Today, we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So exactly what is imposter syndrome and how do you overcome it? So we're going to get into that and so much more. Without further ado, cue that intro. What's up, guys? It's your girl, Margo Bingham. Karen Parsons. You're now tuned in. You're now tuned in. You're now tuned in. You are now tuned in. You are now tuned in to Beard and Curls. 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 Keep it locked. Our guest today is incredibly accomplished. Her body of work is quite impressive. So much so, we're going to have to put the full bio in the show notes. But we still want to give you guys a highlight of her accomplishments. What you got for her? So she's a licensed psychologist and executive coach with a focus on career advancement, leadership development, and job transitions. She has appeared in outlets such as the New York Times, NBC News, Forbes, the Huffington Post, Business Insider, and many more. Her book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life, co-authored with her partner, Dr. Richard Orbay Austin, was released in April 2020. You know her, you love her. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's fun to be here. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, so let's jump right into it. So uh, with so many misconceptions, uh, what is a high-level definition of what imposter syndrome is? Sure. So um, at the high level, imposter syndrome is this experience where highly achieved people, whether you know it's about their skills, abilities, credentials, whether they have these kinds of um, significant experience in a particular area, where they feel like they're a fraud. Um, so they feel like those experiences have either come from a mistake, for from luck, from a relationship. So they don't necessarily trust them, and they don't necessarily believe that they should be kind of seen as having those particular competencies. And so as a result, they're constantly overworking in order to show that they belong or they should, should be where they're at. And so that feeling of overworking sort of plagues them so much that they never internalize any of the, the credentials, the competencies, the skills, and um, experience either like eventually burnout or um, you know, some, sometimes an exposure of this fraudulence, sometimes they make a mistake and they feel like they are completely a fraud, which reinforces the imposter syndrome. So generally that's what it is. A lot of people wonder, is it that is it like that experience from Catch Me If You Can, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie where people are pretending to be somebody? No, it's exactly mm -hmm. the opposite. It's where people are actually the actual thing, but they feel like they don't deserve to be. Right. And I like that you kind of explained that part because a lot of people might think that it was something where you pretend to be something uh, that you're not, whereas it's actually the opposite. And another thing, mm -hmm. too, is that it's not a mental illness, right? Because a lot of people yes. get that misconception. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, not a mental illness. We, uh, the people who coined it, um, two psychologists named Clance and Imes, called it a phenomenon. So they called it a phenomenon. I think we now refer to it as a syndrome, although they don't like that because they think it kind of leads to this misconception that it could be a mental illness, but it is not a mental health diagnosable condition. It is an experience that occurs. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Interesting. So I saw in one of your videos that I watched, you talk about different cycles of imposter syndrome. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There are two that, that are the most identifiable. Um, the first one we, we call imposter cycle one. It's the most traditional, the most common, where mm -hmm. someone gets a high priority project or a high visibility experience. They worry about their performance. As a result, they overwork. And then they get generally a positive feedback about the performance, but don't bother to internalize it. And then once again, enter into that cycle again. 
Um, the second one is where you get the high performance project, you, you have the performance anxiety, and then as a result, you self-sabotage. So you engage in procrastination or not planning or doing all these other things that are gonna set you up for an inconsistent performance. And mm -hmm. so when that performance is even just slightly inconsistent, because remember, these people are super competent, so rarely mm -hmm. does it fall apart. It's usually just slightly not, not 100%. And when they take any potential feedback, then they it reinforces this idea that they are an imposter. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What is the root cause of imposter syndrome? Yeah, so what's been found is that um, there's common um, childhood experiences that occur with people who have imposter syndrome. So the first one is that you were the intelligent one in your family. So you, want, you were the one who was thought of as naturally smart, naturally gifted, but that also came along with this idea that you didn't have to work hard at things. So if you ever had to work hard, it, for you, it felt like um, some revelation that you weren't as naturally gifted or as talented as everyone thought you were. Mm -hmm. The second type is um, people who, had, who weren't the, the brightest in the family, but they were the ones who knew how to grind and work hard. And then as a result, you never internalized any natural skills or gifts. You felt like everything came as a result of working hard. Um, and the third type is um, a type that isn't regularly identified in the literature. But when my husband and I were writing the book, we thought there's a third type there's, that doesn't get talked a lot, about a lot. And that's people who are in this survivor experience where they didn't have parents or elders or people telling them that they were gifted or talented or worked hard. There was a lot of absence of parental figure and all they knew how to do is survive. So they knew how to grind it out to survive. So even when they achieve really significantly, they still think they're in survival mode and they don't take in any of the accolades or, or kind of notions of success because they're very caught up in like, the minute I stop working at this pace or this way, I'm gonna, it's all gonna fall apart. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think I, I, like, I like the fact that, that you guys um, thought about it deeper and that you added to that third root cause. Yeah, I think when, when my husband Richard and I were writing the book, um, we clearly were both PhDs, so we scoured the literature and we read everything. But, you know, because it isn't a mental illness, mm -hmm. it doesn't have a lot of research behind it because oftentimes research is funded to support mental health issues. So if you get a research grant from NI NIMH or NIH, there's, a, there's money coming for it, which supports a lot of research. There, there was research, but for 40 years, there wasn't what you'd imagine there should be. So there were lots of holes and my husband and I were like, okay, let's, let's talk about what's out there and let's try to fill the holes with like our experience as clinicians because we have a private practice. We've been practicing in a private practice for almost 15 years, but then also we've been mm -hmm. practicing before that. We're like, what do you see? What's missing? What's not talked about in literature? What do we see as being either successful ways to kind of you know, help alleviate it or the, some of the root causes of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I wanted to kind of follow up on that because obviously the book has already been released. It's out. And just to be clear, it's not an academic book. It's a workbook, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. okay. You did your homework? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you <we> did. <laughs> so, what do you hope someone will ultimately get uh, from being able to read that book and follow along with some of the things that you guys were able to come up with? I mean, I think it's it's a great question. I think um, what I ultimately hope for people is that they they have an experience like I had because I had imposter syndrome myself. Mm -hmm. And in my TED talk, I talk about the moment it sh all shifted for me. And I, I kind of hope that for all the for all the people who are struggling with imposter syndrome that, that they're able to shift it to a point where they can actually put it in its place, have tools to deal with it, and then be able to kind of sit in all the possibilities of their life. So that's what Richard and I's dream is, is we've, 
we, the reason why we were so excited about the book was because we largely work with people with imposter syndrome. And it was like, when they walk into your office, you can see their, and, and you, we can see their greatness and they can't. And the exciting piece is to get them to unlock that and to do it in a book to try to unlock like as many people as we possibly could's greatness felt really mm -hmm. powerful and really exciting. So that's what we kind of hope for. Definitely. And actually, one of the things also with that, too, I like that you said that, uh, that you work with people like that in your practice. Uh, I've done uh, a lot of work also with people who suffer from imposter syndrome. A lot of these people were working in tech industries and things like that, and they often felt like, oh, man, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. Uh, do you, Is there a population that you find struggles with this more than others from the research that you've done? It's a great question, but the research is inconsistent. So the, the initial studies were done with women. So the belief was that women struggle with this more than men. And so when they were hypothesizing the theory initially, it was all about women um, because they were seeing it most predominantly in women where they were working, they were working at a college. Um, I think now it's been shown that it, it, show, it shows up equivocally. So sometimes they see it more in men, sometimes they see it more in women, sometimes they see it more in people of color, sometimes they don't. It's been very inconsistent. So my guess is that we probably see it fairly evenly although it operates um, differently in different populations because it impacts us differently in different populations. So I would say probably it, it just looks different in different populations, but that we're experiencing it fairly evenly. Okay. Okay. So you talked about um, people who internalize it and there are people who don't, right? So mm -hmm. can you give like an example of somebody who has internalized it and somebody who didn't internalize it, like how does it look like? When you do internalize it, then the next time becomes less scary because you use the past as an experience. You're like, oh, I've done this before and I've been successful. So the next time you either take a greater risk or you you know, see yourself as like being able to confidently handle something and you're not plagued by the performance anxiety so dramatically. Um, so that's, that's, I think, some of the shifts that you see. You also see people when, when they're able to take in an experience, they're more open to feedback and learning. So mm -hmm. the, net, the, 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 the what, what once felt like criticism now feels like feedback that I can grow and learn from because I feel a sense of confidence in the base skills that I do have. Um, so I think you do see that ability to kind of take the next step forward where oftentimes one of the things that you know is often talked about with people with imposter syndrome is that they're limiting some of the potential that they have. There's because they don't they don't think they're capable of, so they won't take risks. They won't put themselves out there. They won't kind of take it to the next level because even the level they're currently at feels scary. As far as like someone who may be struggling with imposter syndrome, is there a particular like workplace culture or workplace environment that may foster some of those feelings as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, we also talked about this in the TED talk um, about like um, work. We call them work imposter syndrome inducing workplaces. And I think some of them are like the cultures that make you work like 24 seven and don't expect that you don't set any kind of boundaries or don't take care of yourself. Those can be really triggering of the overworking phenomenon for people with imposter syndrome. They just, they just feel like, okay, I must overwork to, to, to manage and keep my job. And so that those are reinforcing, I think where there's a high level of criticism um, and kind of like if someone makes a mistake, it becomes like this big, big deal that everyone sort of harps on because nobody makes mistakes here. Like mm -hmm. perfectionistic cultures. Um, you know, it's also interesting is that um, when you have imposter syndrome, because you beat up on yourself so much and you have so many insecurities about the things that you're competent in, 
you often sometimes pick bosses who are pretty toxic and do the same thing to you because in some ways you believe that they truly see you, right? They truly see what's underneath all this is that you don't know what you're doing, you're incompetent. So bosses that kind of reinforce that are very commonly found, you know, as, as, as connected to um, the kinds of bosses that, you know, people with imposter syndrome have. So it's, it's super common to kind of be drawn to toxic bosses and toxic workplaces because they're familiar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, someone who is struggling with imposter syndrome, how can this person develop better boundaries? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think that it's, it's about recognizing that the overworking isn't doing any good for you. Like, I think that's a very hard concept for people with imposter syndrome because they just feel like if they let up a hair, it's done. Um, and so to begin to recognize that you're what you're producing is like 150% and that if you were at like 90 or 80 or 100, you'd still be killing it. And so like, it's okay to be able to set boundaries at work and be able to go home at like five or six um, and to shut your phone off. Like, but you also have to test the boundaries. So I often, with my practice, suggest people like test it in micro increments, like take it down just a hair. If you're, if you're leaving work at eight, don't leave work at five now, leave work at like 7.30 or like stop work at 7.30 and start to test out whether or not it's true what you believe, that if you work any less, that you're gonna fail. So I think that's a piece of it. I think the other piece is like setting interpersonal boundaries can be really hard because there's such a like a desire for praise and like um, acknowledgement of what you're doing because you're not doing a very good job of it. So I think it's really important to be able to recognize that setting a, setting a boundary with someone who's healthy mm -hmm. um, doesn't produce a rejection or, or um, some kind of like negative thing between the two of you. With someone who's unhealthy, if you set a boundary with them and and they you know react to it, it's a very it's a signal of kind of relationship you're in, and you've got to sort of take a look at that. Um, so I do think it's important to kind of work on practicing these things. We often encourage practicing in micro habits, so mm -hmm. that you know like you don't take the big risk and then something bad happens. You're like, see, I told you, this is what happens. But that you take it in little tiny increments and you figure out where the line and boundary is for your workplace, for you, you know. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's good. In your TED talk, uh, you talked a little bit about what you went through um, at work. So I was just curious to know, like, let's say somebody is struggling in a toxic environment, um, but doesn't have the courage to leave. What tips do you have for this? Yeah, group? definitely. I mean, because I, I often say, like, I don't even know if I said it in the TED talk, but I, I say it often when I tell the story is like, don't do what I did. <laughs> like, what I <laughs> what I did was a bad thing. Like it shouldn't have gotten to that place. Like it got to, it got, it went overboard and I had to quit the job and like quit it on the spot um, mm -hmm. because I had, it had, I had let it go too far. And mm -hmm. so I would encourage you not to let it go too far um, because then you make reactive decisions. And actually I needed to make that decision. Um, it, I needed to get out of there, but I needed to get out of there months ago. Um, and I think what, what I would encourage you to do is, is use community. Um, so I, I think that was one of the things I don't talk about in the Ted talk because it's just a short limited talk. But I think one of the things that I didn't share is that, you know, you saw that my husband was like supporting me and he was supporting me pretty proactively. But I also had a bunch of friends who were like also supporting me and saying, you gotta leave, like enough is enough. Like I just witnessed that, like you can't go through that. They were all sort of like echoing. It was like an echo chamber of all the things I should be doing. And it was really helpful for, you know, it, it was also embarrassing. Um, because like it was, you know, here I was this person who had gotten a PhD from Columbia and look on the outside, looked like I was so successful. And I was putting myself through what was very embarrassing and humiliating at times and people could see it. And they were saying like, you don't have to put up with that. And I was putting up with it. Um, 
And so it's when you share these things, it can be very embarrassing, even to people that you trust and you love, it's still embarrassing. Um, but I think one of the things that I felt from them was they both were holding my foot to the fire a bit and holding me accountable for what I was doing to myself and simultaneously like loving me and supporting my pace because I was struggling to kind of make the move. So, I mean, I think I would use community. I think I would kind of connect to community, make sure you tell people what's going on and you don't hide it because a lot, a lot of imposter syndrome is about letting all this stuff happen within and not sharing it. So I would encourage you to share it with lots of people who you trust. I would also encourage, you know, job seeking can be really hard when you have imposter syndrome because you just feel like this is the only place that's ever going to take me. This is the only place that I, you know, opportunity that I will have. And those are like automatic negative thoughts that aren't true. Um, especially if you're highly valued and you're skilled and accomplished, there are many other places for you. And I, I learned that after because I, you know, I quit that job. And then within two weeks, I had a job that was paying more than that job. So like, I just didn't believe it could, you know, I was sort of shocked that it happened. Um, because I was still in that imposter syndrome place. So I do think it's important for you to recognize how valuable you are and get into a search and kind of get out, um, use your contacts and your networks and kind of do things that a lot of imposter syndrome people don't like. We like to sort of stay inside and like do things on our own and like grid it out on our own. But it, when you need to move, you need help. Definitely. No, I like that you said that community, because one of the things that I always talk about with my clients is natural supports. And so at the end of the day, you know, you want to be able to have people in your corner that you can lean on. And so I'm like, yeah. At that. And yeah. so one of the things I want to follow up on is as far as like, you know, the imposter syndrome, like you talked about how you struggle with that. So when you were going through some of these situations, were you aware that that was imposter syndrome or was that after the fact that you're like, oh, this was imposter syndrome? No, I didn't really know. I mean, I had known the concept, you know, I had heard it before, but I didn't really apply it to myself. And what's interesting, I've seen it in my Instagram was like a lot of people would be like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that was me. Um, I just didn't, I didn't realize that that's what was happening. Really at the time I was thinking, um, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't, cause this kind of sounds like funny because I, was, I got a PhD to become a psychologist. So I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I just didn't, I, I kind of was lost. I kind of felt like I was going in all kinds of directions. So I just attributed it to being lost, um, and sort of not knowing what was next. And that was, was holding me back. And I, I had this like silly notion in my head that, once I figured out what I what I was gonna do, what I was gonna do long term, what I was gonna do next, then I could leave. And it was like, you know, sometimes the steps don't happen that clearly. You have to kind of take the next step forward and then you sort of figure it out along the way. I understand. At some point you started working for yourself, right? Yeah. So um, months after I quit that job. <laughs> <laughs> so can you share a little bit about the impact? of uh, imposter syndrome oh, did you see a huge difference did you not experience it anymore or like how was it i mean it's a road i mean it, it didn't go away immediately um mm -hmm. and it was still plaguing me for it played for a while probably after that but i think i made the, the first massive leap forward during that time and then it was little incremental changes over time mm -hmm. um and i think that you know Taking you know, taking that risk to work on my to work for myself afterwards was a was one of the things that I think helped me personally to kind of believe that I didn't have imposter syndrome because you know there's a there's a line in the TED talk that I love which is that my husband was like reiterating as a chorus that I I still live by which is you know when you learn to work as hard for yourself as you do for others you're going to be unstoppable. And, you know, I, I really just, at first I didn't believe him. I thought, oh, that's a very clever line that he came up with, but, um, but I didn't believe him. But I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna try to work as if someone is employing me. 
And I had to kind of do that because at the time I really didn't trust myself. I never ran a business. I never, my, my family didn't run businesses. My family worked for people for many, many, for decades. So I didn't feel like I had any right to be doing this. And I felt, it felt fraudulent even in trying to start my own business. But I think that I just listened to my husband I, and I was like, he never led me astray before. He's, he, he's a great therapist. He probably knows exactly what he's talking about. I just, I just got to get there. And so that summer after I quit that job and I had this part-time job, I really just like put my head down. I worked as if I was, if someone had asked me to put the, the practice together and I did it in a way that if, so, if I was employed by someone, I would have done it. I crossed all my T's, I crossed, you know, all my, you know, I dotted all my I's. I like did all the things I hated to do that I probably wouldn't do for myself, but I would have do for somebody else. And so I did it and I put together our practice and got it off the ground. Um, and I think in that experience of doing that and being like, I have my own business um, and I did it in like a matter of months. Um, it helped me to recognize that he was right, you know, that that I was sort of letting other people dictate my future and they were taking my greatness because they could see my imposter syndrome working and they were like, they were like living off of it. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny, it reminds me of like something a mentor said when I was in graduate school. He, he was like, there are parasites and there are saprophytes. And mm -hmm. a parasite is a host, something that will live on the host and let it live. And a saprophyte is something that will live on the host and kill it. And, mm. and when we have like imposter syndrome, we, we t it, it, it's not letting us live. It's taking from us in a way that is deteriorating our skills, our abilities, our, you know, through the burnout and through all that other stuff. And it, it was this moment when I was working on my business where it just, I just came alive and I sort of recognized what I was capable of, what was possible if I just worked for myself, if I took care of myself, if I treated myself in a way that, that I would treat other people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great because like from what you're um, saying, it seems like um, working for yourself gave you the opportunity to really do whatever you wanted to do to make the decisions that you found important to choose the priorities you wanted to do. And with that comes freedom. And yeah. like only seeing you talking about it is like inspiring. Baby. I mean, our practices are for my first baby and I just really, you know, I, I love it. It feels like a living, breathing thing, my business. And um it really did it did revive me you know mm -hmm. so i have a very i have a grateful very wonderful warm relationship with my business so mm -hmm. that's great so what is the thing you like most about having your business obviously we talked about a lot of things but if there is one thing that you can choose just one thing <laughs> um i don't know if i just have one thing because all these things are popping into my head Go for it. Uh, so i think uh, that I'm doing things I never imagined I'd ever do. Like I'm doing marketing, I'm doing accounting. I never thought that would ever be part of my life as a psychologist. I, I really proved that the breadth of what I was capable of was much broader than I ever imagined. And so I, you know, I feel like that's been a really fantastic revelation that I'm capable of so much. That was really nice. I think the other thing is that I feel very like blessed and honored to kind of get to do what I do. So like the people come in to my office and they're struggling and they're in pain and they leave happy and joyous and believing their lives can be so much more than they ever. There's something so beautiful about that moment. I always tell clients when they, they ask in the beginning, they're very concerned, right? How long is this going to take? And, and, you know, so I have a standard answer because I know my, I know my stats on my practice. So I know how long someone's with me on average, but I say to them, like, look, you know, Richard and I believe in like that we're here to equip you with skills and tools and that your our goal is to get to see you fly. And there's nothing more there's nothing more exciting than that moment because when we're trained, we're taught like when someone ends with us, it's called termination. I hate that word. 
it seems, sounds like death. It sounds like, and you know, we call it graduation. Like you're graduating, you have new skills, you have new abilities, and you're going to go out there and you're going to use them with all this glory. So there's something about that that's just so magical and, and that I get to do it on my own terms and, and like, cause it's my practice. I get to do it on my own terms in my own way. So that's, that's pretty magical. Um, so yeah. And, and you know, it's just like getting to touch people and getting them to believe change is possible. There's something really amazing about that. Mm -hmm. awesome. I like that. That's awesome. So I wanted to kind of ask you with imposter syndrome, uh, what is some, uh, what is a theoretical orientation or framework that you think works best uh, for someone who may be considering therapy? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think that um, in terms of the, I, I think you could probably work with somebody who has a dynamic orientation. Because if you look at my book and you were a clinician to look at my book, you would see the influence of a variety of different techniques. So there's like dynamic orientations as I make you go back into your history and sort of take a look at it. And, you know, and, and there's some family systems because I make you do like a, a genogram. And there's some narrative therapy because I make you think about sort of like how you can change your narrative using some narrative approaches. There's some cognitive behavioral therapy because I'm making you look at your aunts, your automatic negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. So we're very eclectic. We were luckily feel very grateful to be trained in a variety of different modalities. And I find that um, I always like chafed against this notion that that one was best. So whenever you work with like experts in the field who like follow one theoretical orientation, they're always like, you know, this is the, this is the one, this is the, you know, and then I was like, I hear you because you've committed your life to it, but I don't know if I agree with you. I feel like we could pull from all kinds of strains and be successful. So to me, it's really about finding a clinician that really like gets it and, and sort of feel, and you feel a fit with, and you feel connection with, and you feel like you could work through and be open and vulnerable to the things you have to work on. So I think it's more about like clinician fit than it is about like orientation. Cause you can see in my work, it's I'm very multidisciplinary in my theoretical orientation. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I really like that you said that too, because a lot of times I tell clients right off the bat, like it's not about the therapy, mm -hmm. it's about the therapist because then yeah. you have to have that client fit. And yeah. if you have that, then all things are possible. I always say that too. Like I always say to my clients, like, we are a partnership. Like we're going to do this together. Yes, I have skills and abilities and, and competencies that are going to help us do that, but so do you. And we need to be a partnership and a team and you need to feel like you can work with me like a team member. And if you don't feel like that, it's okay. There are there are so many clinicians out there that can fit you. There's no, there's no shame in that game. It's just looking for the right fit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my next question. Are you guys there the best question. <laughs> <laughs> So are there any correlations between codependency and imposter syndrome? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you yes. tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's even stuff in the literature about the impact of codependency. So it is one of the other family dynamics that you see um, that sort of foster, foster the nature of um, imposter syndrome. And partially that's because in codependent families, it's very hard to own your own self, like your own skills, your own, it, unless it fits to the, the codependent dynamic in the family, unless that, unless that skill is helping the codependency, right? So if you're like, for example, you hear this a lot, I hear this a lot probably because the kind of clients that are drawn to me, but like a, somebody who had a natural propensity to help like healing and helping, like so people who became therapists and, you know, and had a codependent dynamic in their family, um, you know, that, that, that skill will get supported because it's helping somebody in the family function. Right. But if there were, you have another skill in it, it sort of doesn't help the family. They don't care. You know, they don't care about it. 
And I think that that's um, sort of really important to recognize is that it's about sort of the separation individuation work that has to happen with the codependency dynamic of finding your own voice and your own understanding of who you are outside of that dysfunctional deaf family dynamic that has you've worked in and you've survived in, but may not be working for you anymore. Because it also, what I also see is like, you know, my husband used to always say this is a very common phrase, but the professional is personal and the personal professional, you know, so you see them, you see this when you've been in a codependent family dynamic, people go into work dynamics that are family, that are codependent, you know, and they sort of engage in behaviors and they don't notice them because they feel a little bit different and they don't feel like there's a mom or a dad or, you know, like, so that it, it gets sort of muddied, but you can see them engaging in these behaviors where they sort of, you know, feel like they can't leave or they can't say no or they can't set limits, like none of those things are allowed. It's a, these codependent systems at work mirror some of these codependent systems in the family. So there's a lot of correlation between that. Also, in, and I will also add the narcissistic family. So the narcissistic you know, characteristics that exist in either a parental figure or somebody in the family can also, because you, you, get, you get taught to kind of become what they call the narcissistic extension. So what you are is a reflection of that narcissistic person. So you very much get caught in like, I'm not, I have to please other people. I have to look good for other people. I have to make sure other people are happy with me so that I can have value. Can imposter syndrome show up in romantic relationships? Yep, it, it can. And I think the ways that we most commonly see it show up is, is in this, in this way that I don't deserve something or I don't, you know, I don't even, I don't deserve that person. And so I must overwork or overfunction very much that codependent family dynamic stuff. I must code, I must overwork or overfunction to, to be in this relationship. I must always be the, at my best. I must always be lovely and shiny. I must, I can never have a rough moment. Um, so it comes in that overfunctioning place. Um, it can also show up in so, the self-sabotage way, right? The other cycle where you, you, you experience something really good, but you're like, I don't belong here. This is not, this is not what I'm used to. And so you engage in self-sabotaging behaviors because you don't feel like you are worthy of belonging in a healthy relationship. And mm -hmm. so those are the, so those are two of the common ones. I think also some of the toxicity can show up too. So you see that too in, in relationships where you're used to being kind of like treated as if you're not good enough. Um, and that dynamic can also show up in romantic relationships when you struggle with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Awesome. And so, uh, before we let you go, so how can somebody ultimately own their greatness? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, it's layered. Um, so I think, <laughs> I think it's, you know, like anything and, and people hate hearing this from us, but it's so true. It's a process, right? There are times in, even in my own life, and I've worked on this clearly for like 15 plus years where I, where I flash back to a trigger or a trap door in my own life. And I, and I kind of fly, I, the Ted talk was a perfect example of that. Like I, my husband was like prepping his piece of the thing and I was not dealing with it. I was like, I don't want to deal with this because I knew it was going to cause so much performance anxiety. I didn't want to deal with it. And I was setting myself up to, to be in that second cycle to kind of like sabotage myself. And so it wasn't until like I got like a kick in the pants um, from my my husband. He's like, you need to face this. You know, he's like, it's going to be bad because you're setting yourself up. That I kind of was like, okay, I guess what I'm doing and I need to face it. So I think it's the idea that, you know, it's never going to go away. Um, it's never, you're going to always have the, the pulls. You're just going to deal with them a lot differently and you're going to be able to recognize them and make the change that you need. I think, you know, if I were to summarize some of the things that are in the book, it's about sort of understanding where it's come from you know, being able to, to understand it because it helps you then to understand what your, what your like valences are, like what you are vulnerable to in the world um, around particular triggers. 
I think also too, like restoring your narrative, having a new way of talking about yourself and watching the language that you use. You know, I think when I was in the grips of imposter syndrome, I was always like, oh no, 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 like that wasn't me. Or there were tons of other people who were doing that. I would never take compliments or I would have this story about myself that I, that I just accidentally ended up where I ended up. Um, and so like changing that narrative and watching the way you speak to others, which is the way that you speak to yourself. Um, and so also to like dealing with these automatic negative thoughts that come up as a result of, of um, your imposter syndrome and learning how to kind of combat them and like take them on head on. So like, oftentimes my clients will be like, well, how do I, well, what do I do when I come up with this, this negative thought? And I always say, you fight it, you fight it. You just don't, you don't believe it as truth. You fight it. Um, and, and that strategy of learning to fight it and learning not to trust it um, as truth. I think it's also about building community and building people who you trust who are around you who really get it and know how to kind of intervene when they need to. Like my husband and like other friends will like kick me in the butt and be like, uh-uh, I see what's going on here. And I still rely on them for that because, you know, sometimes I have blind spots. We all do. And I need that. So, so that, those things, self-care. So people who have imposter syndrome are horrible at taking care of themselves because they don't feel like they're worthy. So really embedding self-care in your life and your routines. So that's like a smattering of all the things that it takes. But I think when you can overcome, I, I never imagined I'd be here in, the, in my life in this moment. Like if you asked me 15 years ago, this is not where I would have said I would have been. I would have said I was working for someone, God knows what kind of role, who knows. I've probably been a very middling you know, psychologist, I wouldn't have my own practice. I wouldn't have a TED talk. So, I mean, I think that um, it really allowed me to take risks. It really allowed me to see what was possible. It really allowed me to dream getting over it. So like, there's so much that it will provide for you if you can face it and get over it. Like, cause it just really gave me opportunities. Facing it gave me opportunities that might've been in front of me, but I would have never taken them. You know. Wow. Well, we're all thankful that things worked out the way that they did. <laughs> definitely you. blessed us with a wealth of knowledge. And I just yes. want to be able to pull a quick plug right now. The book is out. It's called Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. And that's by you and your husband, Richard. And yeah. I'm encouraging everybody who struggles with imposter syndrome or knows somebody who may struggle with imposter syndrome, Go out and check that out. It's the workbook. It's easy to follow along. And I'm sure it'll make a difference in your life as it did in, in yours. And so I'm definitely excited that we had you on here. And like I said, you are a powerhouse. You guys are a power couple. And I'll put all the information in, in, in the show notes so that way people can find you guys. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, really fun. You guys like did your homework. I'm so impressed. <laughs> I actually have another question. When he was oh, talking, cool. I'm like, I have another question. Yeah. So how was it to work with your husband on the book? Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask us that question. I'm very curious about how how it's like. But you know, it's funny. I met my husband at work, um, so we've almost never not worked together. So we almost don't have that concept of what it's like to not work together. So we met working. We, we became friends, and then um, and then sort of engaged in a relationship. So we've worked together almost like like for the time we, we've been together, seventeen years, and there's only two years we didn't work together. So like we have a long history of working together and we really know how to do that. I mean, I think to be honest though, I'll tell you like little tidbits about it, but um, you know, my husband, I was like, well, kind of like uh, tease me for this, but I'm, I'm very much like an independent worker. So he, like he wanted to kind of just 
like brainstorm every chapter and write it together. And he had this like romantic notion that we just write it together. And I was like, these are your six chapters. These are my six chapters. Like write yours and come back to me and then we'll ed I'll edit them. And so like I won my way, but but he's but I did learn, I did like, it did sort of dawn on me that I, I do want to try to work on that with him because he does enjoy this like brainstorming together stuff. And I just worry about the clock ticking. Um, and so like uh, we, with our TED talk, we actually we actually learned from what we did on the book and then we, we did that together completely together and brainstormed it together um but yeah so there's always we're always working on something you know like in our relationships we're always working to take them to the next level but yeah i didn't I mean I, I was very grateful you know that you know we've often been such a team like the book initially came to me like the the publisher had come to me and asked me to write the book and i said i won't write it without my husband um and they were like well we don't usually deal with like um two authors and i was like oh you're gonna have to do it. <laughs> I don't want to. Like so, we're just a team, and so I knew he was gonna do significant work on it anyway. So I wanted his name on it too, and, and he does the same thing for me. It's like we, we are very much a team. So it it's a it's a lovely thing, but it's not always easy, and we're always working on it. We're always talking about it, so we're always like verbalizing. If one of us is unhappy with the way it's going, we're verbalizing and talking about okay, what are we gonna do then? You know, so like it's always a process, but. Yeah, no, it's a great question, though. <laughs> the very definition of a power couple. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, Lisa, again, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. You're so welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, like it or not, Beard and Curls is the new his and hers. hers.